Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, guys. If you enjoy What Next TBD, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Your contribution helps us produce the unique stories that you hear on this show. It's only a dollar for your first month. And in addition to supporting our journalism, members get an ad-free experience across Slate podcasts and never hit a paywall on the Slate website. Plus, members are essential to keeping the show going. So I hope you will join if you're able to. To sign up now, just go to slate.com slash whatnextplus. Again, that is slate.com slash whatnextplus. A couple of years ago, journalist Siddharth Vardarajan had a meeting with a source. Siddharth is the co-founder of the Indian news site The Wire, and he was getting ready to talk with the minister from India's Modi government— and the guy he was meeting started acting a little nervous about their phones. This minister basically, you know, he said, take out your phone. So Siddharth took his phone out and switched it off. And then to assure me, he took out his phone and switched his phone too. And mm-hmm. then he said, follow me into another room. And then the phones were put in this room. His music system was turned on loud. And we exited the room with the phone, with the switched off phones in that room and then sat somewhere else to have our conversation. Siddharth thought to himself, this is maybe going a little far. Would anyone really be eavesdropping on us through our phones? And the answer that we've all learned this week is yes. A group of media organizations has uncovered evidence of a massive spying effort targeting journalists, activists, and business leaders. Siddharth is one of several people whose phones were compromised with spyware from the Israeli firm NSO Group. The company says it sells its spyware to governments to surveil terrorists and criminals. But a group of 17 news organizations, including Siddharth's, The Washington Post, and The Guardian, found that NSO's software was used to try to hack journalists, dissidents, and public officials around the world. And in several cases, like Siddharth's, someone succeeded. Someone got into his phone. What was on that, I mean, did, and and what was that moment like? Thinking that that part of your life had been compromised. Well, there, there are lots of photographs of my my dog <laughs> on the phone, uh, and yeah, but it's 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 a you know it's a, it's an unpleasant feeling, right? Because you uh, you are then forced to go back and ask yourself exactly the question that you asked me. That okay, so what was it that they were looking at? 
anyone running NSO spyware, called Pegasus, could see Siddharth's phone's contacts, his sources, his location, and notes about his reporting. You run a pretty outspoken and editorially independent news operation. Who do you think was spying on you? Was it the Modi government? I have no doubt in my mind that that this is a government agency. If it was just me and nobody else in the country, then I could say, well, it could be anybody else. I, you know, I've written about uh, Nepal, I've written about China, I've written about America, maybe it's the CIA, right? Who knows? But if if we look at the list of actual and potential targets, and it includes opposition politicians, it includes journalists, it includes a young woman who filed a, a sexual harassment complaint against the Chief Justice of India, which other government could possibly have an interest in such a diverse range of people in India, other than the Indian government? Siddharth is just one case in one country. The new reporting that came out this week found thousands of people targeted with NSO spyware, likely by their own governments. Today on the show, inside the mercenary spyware industry and a warning about what could happen next. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I was wondering how you would describe your job and, and what it is that you do. You know, I describe the work that we do as trying to understand different digital threats against civil society. This is John Scott Railton. He's a researcher at a group called Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. And in recent years, a good piece of that has been tracking the mercenary spyware industry and the harm that they're causing. I wanted to talk to him because he's been researching spyware for roughly a decade and tracking NSO, which made the spyware that targeted Sadar's phone, since 2016. He helped find their software Pegasus on an Emirati dissident's phone, and he also investigated NSO spyware on hundreds of WhatsApp users. You have obviously been focused on NSO and, and other companies in this arena for years. But I think a lot of Americans may have seen headlines about them this week for, you know, the first or second time. Mm-hmm. How would you describe what it is that they do? 
At its core, the mercenary spyware industry comes to governments with a pitch and they say, look, there are people you want to target, but increasingly they're using encryption. You still want to know what they're saying. So we have a solution for you. Use our product and hack their telephones. And then you can see anything that they can see. You can do anything that they can do on their phones. And moreover, you can do it silently without your victims knowing about it. And that, it turns out, is dictator catnip. And the industry covers itself in the fig leaf of saying that they sell to track terror and criminals. But what they know, and what we all now know, is that their growth model involves selling to authoritarian regimes who, surprising no one, turn right around and abuse this technology to target their perceived enemies, critics, their family members, whoever else is bothering Mr. Strongman on a Tuesday afternoon. NSO um, is pretty tight-lipped about who its clients are. What do we know about who they are? NSO's customer base is, at this point, kind of the familiar set. Gulf countries, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, but also some pretty random small places. For example, there are a lot of NSO targets in Togo who happen to be government critics. Morocco hmm. seems to be a profligate user as well. Um, it that uh, they've tried to sell to various places in West Africa. What's interesting about this uh, customer base is that it's mostly authoritarian regimes. If your phone's infected with Pegasus, what can, what can someone surveilling you see? As soon as your phone is infected, the Pegasus operator can see whatever you see. That means they can see your encrypted chats. They can see the messages you send. They can see the pictures you take of your friends and yourself. They can read your notes to yourself, look at your web browsing. They can even activate the camera and microphone and listen in from your pocket to the room that you're in. It's incredibly invasive stuff. Recently, Amnesty International and Forbidden Stories, a French journalism nonprofit, obtained a list of 50,000 phone numbers that were potentially targeted by Pegasus. Numbers in Mexico, in the Gulf states, India, and other places. They then shared that list with that group of 17 news organizations that I mentioned earlier in the show. The reporters then started tracking down who the numbers belonged to. They identified about 1,000 people by phone number, and more than 60, like Siddharth Vardarajan, agreed to hand over their phones for forensic examination. There were 37 phones that showed some evidence of, of a attempted or successful hack. Um, we're talking journalists, human rights activists had these phones, two women who were very close to Jamal Khashoggi, the murdered Washington Post columnist. Mm. And then the wider list, we don't know if these people were hacked. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, Raul Gandhi, very prominent opponent to India's prime minister. I, I wonder if you feel um, validated that you've been warning about this stuff for years? Or was the scope of that even beyond what your research has hinted at? I think that the feeling that me and my colleagues have had is this is the horrible thing that we've been trying to warn people about. Hmm. Here it is. This is exactly what you could expect. Some of the investigations that we've done in the past, if you look at reporting, for example, around the 2019 WhatsApp case, Reuters reported that foreign government officials were on that list. And I can just say from looking at the activities of NSO, it's common for government customers of spyware companies to use this not as a criminal investigative tool, 
but as a leg up into the intelligence game, it should be no surprise. Everybody wants to be able to do some sort of signals intelligence. It's just that many states can't. And I like to call this guerrilla signals intelligence. It's no surprise that heads of state and other prominent, powerful people are targeted. It would be a bigger surprise if they weren't. There are the obvious reasons an autocratic government might want to hack a phone to track critics, see what they're saying, spy on them. But then John says there's something more intangible that just the fear of tracking can instill. Most authoritarians and strongmen rulers use fear and censorship as the glue to hold their Mad Max constructions of states together. And I really believe that spyware and the threat of it, the threat of being able to just completely dig into somebody's personal life and route around through it for something to harm them, is a new tool for authoritarians. And they all want it. They love the idea of being able to threaten people across borders with this possibility. It's not new. If you want to see this play out, look at a dictator in a panic. I remember in 2011, I was investigating Libyan hackers working on behalf of Muammar Gaddafi. And a lot of the conflict was being coordinated uh, on the opposition side across Skype. People in Libya were calling friends in Europe, and they were calling relatives in Europe who were sending them ambulances and food and resources and so on. And boy, this scared Gaddafi because suddenly the opposition was able to mobilize resources outside of the domain of his security services. So what did he do? Well, his hackers were able to use some pretty unsophisticated Trojans to break into a few people's computers, and they recorded some Skype calls. And then Libyan State TV played those Skype calls, and Gaddafi said, you see, we can listen into your Skype conversations. Why would he say that? It wasn't true. And the reason was he believed that that fear would be enough to slow down a revolution. And it's why I believe that the very existence of Pegasus and the fact that a bunch of states are sort of notorious, rapacious, and profligate users of it means that they're trying to export that fear as far as they can outside of their borders. I think I know what you're going to say to this, but you know I have to ask you. Um, you know, this company has said, hey, our technology does save lives. It's been a game changer for anti-terrorism work. Do you buy any of that? I think that NSO wants us to be so unsophisticated that we cannot hold in our heads the possibility that something can do some good and a lot of bad at the same time. So you do think there's some potential for good? I think that what NSO would like you to believe is that because they claim, although they've never really done it in a clear way publicly, NSO would like you to believe that there's like a 24 style situation going on all the time where secret policemen are just deploying NSO left and right to stop kidnappings and other bad actors. Intelligence agencies came to us and say, we do have a problem with the new smartphones. In a 2019 interview with 60 Minutes, NSO's CEO, Shalev Julio, sat down with Leslie Stahl to defend the company's spyware. How many lives do you think Pegasus has saved? Ten of thousands of people. Really? Yes. Julio referred us to the head of a Western European intelligence agency who, off camera, confirmed that Pegasus is a game changer in foiling attacks by European jihadists, as well as shutting down drug and human trafficking rings. Intelligence officials on background 
boy, is there ever a mixed and checkered history about what hmm. intelligence officials say on background in a self-serving way. And I think that that points to the bigger problem, which is maybe before the war on terror, maybe 20 years ago, people would have been a little bit more naive about this framing. But at this point, it sounds like a tired tape cassette. And it's about that vintage and it's just not working. And it's telling that NSO, after trotting this out yet again this week in response to these revelations, has now backed away from media coverage saying that they're done talking about it. They rage quit and dropped the microphone and walked away. In response to this week's stories, NSO issued a long statement calling the reports false and uncorroborated. It says the list of 50,000 phone numbers is, quote, not an NSO list and never was. But later came that mic drop that John referred to. The company posted a statement on its website titled Enough is Enough, saying it would no longer respond to media inquiries about these stories. This, to me, speaks of a company that is panicking about this amount of attention and about the heat that they brought down on themselves and probably uh, the government that is authorizing the sale of their product. Which is the Israeli government. Correct. When we come back, how do you shut down the international spyware industry when governments are the customers? Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. You're listening to What Next TBD. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm talking with John Scott Railton about the recent revelations that thousands of cell phones, including those of dissidents and world leaders, may have been targeted by NSO's spyware. You know, one thing that's that's pretty striking to me in this reporting is just how vulnerable people's phones were, including iPhones, because Apple has made such a big deal about security, privacy protections. I mean, that is sort of how they market themselves. Um, I wonder what that says to you about how secure those devices actually are. So you live somewhere, an apartment or a house. Do you think it would be possible to make your residence completely burglar-proof? I mean, one would hope, but, you know, no. No, right? There's almost nothing, nothing you could do short of bricking up your door and walls and windows. And something similar is true with devices. There is a never-ending arms race between people trying to find their ways in and platforms and operating system developers and companies like Apple trying to shut them out. What makes players like NSO so tricky is that they spend huge amounts of time and effort, money and resources just looking for the next hole in an iPhone or an Android device. And it means that unless the companies are really actively tracking these groups and kind of letting them do the bug hunting work for them, 
these groups will always have a way around whatever even the most current security protection is. And that means, I think, that we have to nuance our conversation about security away from the idea there's a device that you can buy that will just be perfectly secure and that will insulate you from this kind of hack and towards something that looks more like, okay, so when a company learns about a bad thing being done to their users, what do they do about it? And what's interesting is that in recent years, WhatsApp, Facebook, Microsoft, Google have become increasingly muscular and public in the way that they're not only calling out some of the mercenary groups that are doing this, but in the case of WhatsApp and Facebook, actually going after them yeah, in suing US them. courts. They're suing them. And that, to me, is a really good signal that the spyware industry has stepped over a lot of lines at this point. And big tech sees them as a threat to their business and as a threat to the privacy of their users and their reputations. But okay, I mean, how then, even if you're a user, do you fight or even know about an attack where you don't have to click on something. I mean, like even my mom at this point knows don't click the random message that you get. But here we're talking about stuff where, you know, phones are attacked with without the user's knowledge. With nothing. There's nothing you could do. You can be perfect and still get hacked. What's interesting about Pegasus and NSO and the whole industry is that they're really moving towards a model where they can compromise a phone without any behavior required on the part of the victim. And it just means that users are there naked and twisting in the digital wind. There is nothing that they can really do to protect themselves. No handset that they can buy, no mobile antivirus product that's going to solve this problem. And right now, at least, it's a situation where it touches everybody, which means unlike a situation, which is, I think, often true with cybersecurity, where only people who can't pay for certain kinds of support are vulnerable. Here, 10 prime ministers, three presidents, and a king can't be wrong. Everyone seems to be vulnerable right now. Well, if there's something that I can't do that's going to fix this thing, is there something that Apple or you know Google could do at, at yes. the level of their security? There is. There is. One of the problems that tech always has is when a threat actor is in a country where they're not susceptible to the usual consequences like Russia or Iran, you have to figure out some other way to limit the damage that this group does to your users and to your security. In this case, NSO for too long appears to have a pretty free hand and is basically skidding along without much consequence. I think the other half of this is that companies need to put their research where their mouth is. If they're going to promise their users security, they have to be able to say, yep, we're investing a lot of money. We have people who spend their days thinking about nothing but what the commercial spyware industry is doing and trying to anticipate their next move and protecting our users from it. That also means that those companies have to be regularly working with government and saying, look, we have a problem. We need you to use your channels or help us find some accountability or use diplomatic channels to get this thing to stop, because right now it is totally out of control. That seems like a, a pretty difficult conversation for big tech and governments to, to be having right now. Certainly, if you look at, you know, big tech is at odds with um, many parts of the U.S. government, with uh, the European Commission, it doesn't exactly seem like they're, you know, psyched to be working hand in hand. I think one of the real challenges that we face is that 
as users, we are increasingly dependent on a very small number of companies and their approach to cybersecurity. And those companies need to be sure that they're in a position with respect to uh, governments to be able to make their case. At the end of the day though, and I think that this is what really bugs me about this industry, it looks a lot like the arms trafficking industry. Hmm. And remember during the Cold War, both Russia and the US found that it convenient that there was a gray market of arms traffickers. There were a lot of proxy conflicts and they had to be fueled somewhere. And a lot of that was weapons that were brought to them by gray market arms traffickers. The problem accelerated after the end of the Cold War when all these former Soviet client states with just huge amounts of weapons in their armories were like trying to figure out what to do with all this metal. And they sold it and a lot of it went to Africa and made those conflicts bloody. I think that the industry that sells this kind of mercenary spyware looks a lot like that. It's been convenient for governments to kind of not talk about it because they also like to play in those pools, maybe use it as a tool for some kind of soft power diplomacy. But ignoring it in the long run is only going to lead to bad things. I do wonder, though, where all of this goes, because the the breadth of this reporting by, you know, The Washington Post, The Guardian, all, all of these news organizations shows both the, the breadth of the potential targeting, but also that there is a huge market for NSO's product and for spyware in general. None of these investigations so far seem to have stopped those sales. Which brings us to the core of the problem which is at the end of the day, we need to get to a place where there is will from government, from private sector, and from civil society to address this. It looks like civil society has definitely decided that NSO is a net bad for democracy. Big tech is coming around to that point. And the next question is, will governments start recognizing the clear and blinking harm that this poses? And I would just note yesterday in a Senate Intelligence Committee, Ron Wyden said that there had to be consequences for this kind of private spying. And it sounds like the tide is beginning to change in some places. Yeah, but how does that happen if government is in fact your customer? Governments have to get to a place where they recognize that proliferation of powerful, dangerous things is a bad thing. They started getting there with weapons. They recognized after decades that actually having a giant soupy morass of questionable people selling really dangerous stuff that could kill you was a net bad and began implementing increasingly serious regulations around arms trafficking and arms control. It may unfortunately be the case that a lot more harm is going to have to happen even to the national security of a bunch of democracies before they realize this. You have tweeted a lot in the past week or so about all of um, these stories and the various revelations coming out. And, and you had a series of tweets sort of aimed at the average person, the the reasons to care. I wonder if you could walk me through those, because this does feel highly theoretical. I think if you're just like, well, I don't know, I'm not a dissident. And I think that this is how it's gone this far without being addressed. It just turns out that it is hard to explain in ways that are simple, certain kinds of harm. And it's hard to show them. It's like climate change, right? Yeah. People want to see it. And one of the things that's powerful about this forbidden stories, amnesty work 
is that they see harm. They see people who are victims. They see people who are targets. Now, it may be the case that they see people who they don't know, right? Most people are not going to personally know any of these targets. But the thing is, you don't know if that's going to be true tomorrow. And the reason is that the holy grail of NSO and the mercenary spyware industry is to get into the US marketplace. And I don't just mean selling to the FBI. I mean selling to local cops. They say their technology doesn't work on US phones now. They have said that their technology does not allow foreign customers to target US phone numbers. They have also spent years pitching their tech to US police departments. Presumably, there's just a switch they could flick, right? If they're going to sell this to a US police department, they're obviously going to sell them the capacity to target a US number. There's no magic in the DNA of Pegasus that prevents that. Ten years ago, people were just beginning to report on the industry, and it was hard to get people to care because the victims didn't look like them, they didn't live in their countries. With each cycle of this, the victims look more and more like them and are increasingly likely to be in their country. This shockwave of surveillance is going to end up literally at our doors, our collective doorsteps. And we need to figure out how to slow this industry down before it does. John Scott Railton, thank you very much. Thanks so much. John Scott Realton is a senior researcher at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. Siddharth Varadarajan is a founding editor of the Indian news portal, The Wire. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks, and we're edited by Tori Bosch and Allison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next. It explores how the COVID vaccines have become a target of right-wing anger. Mary Harris will be back next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.